You know, I struggle with uh, lectures like this one because, at least from my perspective, it's a controversial topic. And uh, it can be an incendiary topic in certain circles. But sometimes I preface these kinds of things with concerns and, and uh, introductions like I'm about to give, and then you guys are like, you know, no, no controversy here. But it can be, and it's important that the solution to our conflicts within the body of Christ uh, are solved uh, with knowledge. I mean, that may sound very one-sided, but that is so much of what the New Testament says. We ought to be growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bereans proved that seeking knowledge and biblical truth was what it's all about. And I often think of this verse in Romans chapter 10. In verse number 2, I know the context is about the Jews who, you know, don't know Christ, but this is obviously a paradigm that fits in so many places. He says in Romans chapter 10, verse number 2, I can testify about them, that is uh, the Israelites, that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Then he gets into the specifics in verse 3 of their problem. But I find that there are so many topics within the body of Christ that are um, uh, divisive. And today's natural reaction to that is to back off. You know, we love the phrase, let's agree to disagree. Uh, That's not the biblical answer. The biblical answer is to find unity around truth, unity around biblical knowledge. Uh, What we want and what Paul wanted for the Israelites is that they would have the knowledge that was in keeping with truth. Uh, But unfortunately, when it comes to this topic that we'll be addressing tonight at several points, there's a lot of zeal and a lot of excitement and a lot of enthusiasm, but not a lot of knowledge. And uh, the other passage I was thinking of, that if you're quick with your Bible, you might want to turn over to Galatians chapter 5, verse number 15. Here's my concern for the church in certain areas, and I think it's Satan's strategy. If we can just live here and not on the cutting edge of where God would have us be in terms of ministry, discipleship, and evangelism, he can win. Uh, And Paul warns the Galatians, and he says, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. He sees the infighting within the the body of Christ. And it's interesting in Galatians, and perhaps you already know this, Sunday school grads know this, but uh, unlike Ephesians and Colossians and and, uh, Philippians, Galatians is not a church. Galatians is a region. It is a series and a group of churches. So this is a broad statement. Here are these conflicts that are brooding amongst the churches, uh, and and he doesn't want them to bite and devour each other. So I think for us, as we address some of these issues tonight that will lead us to translation discussions, and there's so much emotion and zeal about translations, I just want to make sure uh, that we understand God's solution is not, well, I don't want to get into any of this. It's we need to get into it, and we all need to, with a fair and sober mind, explore the truth on these topics so that we can come to unity about them. That's the solution. But before we ever get to that, we want to pray. And then we want to take our oral exam that we take every Thursday night. Hopefully at Thanksgiving dinner you stopped to run through the steps in your mind. But let's pray. Let's talk to God for a minute. God, we do pray that you would exercise our minds, that you would allow us to grow not only in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, but the knowledge of of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this, what more pertinent topic than this, the the method 
and the means by which you deliver information about Christ to us that we need to come to some uh, agreement upon. We need to be unified about, particularly within each local church. It's enough for us in the body of Christ to be lobbing stones at one another. But um, God, within the church, I think of 1 Corinthians 1.10, that we should be uh, perfectly united in mind and thought. So help us, God, certainly within the borders and the walls of Compass Bible Church to be in agreement about these issues as we seek to learn and grow in our knowledge of the background, the transmission, the textual criticism, and the translation of the Bible. Pray all this, God, tonight. Enlighten us. Give us a great study together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We have a test to take, and it starts with this. God's thoughts to the mind of the apostle. We call that still so weak. But this one will be stronger, won't it? From the mind of the apostle to the page of the inspired text, we call that, or better yet, we, we love another word there, God breathed, or theopanustos, that's fine. We've got documents on the table. We need to make sure that all of them are a part of God's inspired library. We call that step canonicity, and you're not peeking. That's great. And then we've got these documents on the table that say, well, this is a part of God's inspired library, but they've got to get to us through time. We call that transmission. Now that we have all the fragments, the extant fragments on the table, we've got to get them into our critical editions of the Old and New Testament. We call that step. That's what we're working on now. And now we need to have these Bibles on our table. We need to get them into a language that's easier for us to study. We call that step translation. Beautiful. Okay, now we're talking about adding miscellaneous details, which I almost didn't put on the slide tonight because I thought we covered it. But I'll add one. There are several we could look at. And we just don't know where a lot of these come from. They're hard to put in another category. But a passage like Luke chapter 24, verse 53, early manuscripts say they stayed continually at the temple praising God. I did this at the end of my study last week and probably not the best example. Um, but I can think of a few others here on the fly. Later manuscripts add this little tidbit. They stayed continually at the temple thanking and praising God, thanking maybe a conflation of some manuscripts, but then they add the word amen. Which brings me, by the way, to the end of the Bible. Revelation 22 is another classic example. And I didn't bring my Greek New Testament, but if you look at your English text here with me, you may even have a footnote here. Mine doesn't. But Revelation 22, 21 is another example of an adding of a miscellaneous detail. I mean, this is the end of the canon, the end of the Bible. This is the last book. So when it ends with this reading, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people, amen. Well, some manuscripts don't add the word amen. Some add with God's saints. Some add with God's holy saints to all, to all, panta, I remember that, uh, without the word people. Um, there's several different endings that seem to build on one another, which seemed like at the end of a text, there might have been a gloss or a scribal marginal note, and they just started putting these together to where finally we had so many variants on the, the phrasing of the end of that verse. This is often, and I think Luke 24, 53 is the last verse there, uh, we often find these miscellaneous details tacked on to the ends of phrases, paragraphs, or books. Uh, and probably a classic and very confusing variant reading is there in Revelation 22. So these are kind of the uncategorized. We, we're not sure 
why these are there, but they seem to be intentional. They seem to add things. You might want to maybe uh, the Lord's Prayer would be another one, right? For thine is the, the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's a clearly a late edition in late manuscripts that seems to add the flavor of a nice close to that prayer, which wasn't in early manuscripts. All right, let's move on to this because this is really where we need to, to focus. We've got to decide between these variants. If I put two documents before you and they are there and you don't know which one reflects the original and they're different from one another, and you've seen that most of these are very small, uh, you've got to make a decision. Which one am I going to choose? Which one is really the one that Paul, Peter, James, or John actually wrote? That's the challenge of textual criticism, and we've got to make those decisions carefully. How do we make those? Well, we're not usually making those, but we do have to second-guess the translations that we use. So what do we do? Well, the first thing we do is we consider the source. That's page 61, and it's already printed for you, and that's why there are no pins moving, because there it is. What about the source? Number one, we need to consider the date of the manuscript. We're already into controversial territory here. But I think most of us, if there's nothing clouding your judgment, you do want to ask the question about any document on the table, how distant is this manuscript from the original? And we've already established earlier in our lectures that it would be important for us, at least logically without anything else considered, to have a manuscript that is closer in time to the original manuscript. Because if copies are made from copies, if there is some corruption introduced in the first hundred years, and that corruption is carried into the next hundred years, I'd, I really don't want to deal with something that's eight or nine hundred years from the source. It'd be better for me to consider the age of the document to decide how much weight and credence I put in that manuscript. Because if I got two manuscripts on the table, and one is a 12th century manuscript, and one is a 2nd century manuscript, I think you would agree if there was nothing else I knew about those manuscripts, and there were variants between the two, I would rather choose the older manuscript, right? the one that is closer to the original, because I want the distance from the original to be small. Okay? Now, there are mitigating factors. But generally speaking, though it's now largely debated because there's an axe to grind with an opposite view, I think all of us could agree that makes sense. The telephone game makes that an obvious example of why you want to be closer to the original, if you know what I'm talking about. Can I give you some examples? Let's go to John chapter 5. I didn't put these on the overhead, but these would be good to look up. John chapter 5. Look carefully at verse number four. Oh, bummer. There it is again. Not many of these, but we'll try to deal with all of them here through our study. Here's another example. Okay? The variant begins in verse number three. If you have a study Bible or a reference Bible, you've probably got a marginal note here. It talks about laying the, the multitude of sick. They would lay their sick there, the blind and lame and paralyzed. And then there's a variant reading that comes late in the manuscripts that reads, waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the waters. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the waters was made well of whatever disease he had. Verse 5, one man was there who had been an invalid, and on it goes. Right? You have 
They'd lay their sick there, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, one man was there who was an invalid, because you don't have verse 4 unless you're carrying a uh, King James Bible here with you. Let me give you some examples, just to talk through that one verse right there. Which, again, if you're dealing with people that are full of zeal but not a lot of knowledge, and I don't mean to be pejorative about that, but you're going to say, you've just taken something out of the Bible. That's bad. You shouldn't take verses out of the Bible. And don't you know those modern translations keep taking verses out? And here's another example. Your pastor's already showed you passages, and boom, they're gone. Verses are just evaporating from the Bible, and, and Satan must clearly be at work. Okay? The papyri don't have this verse. Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, most of the uncial manuscripts that we've looked at and studied. Vulgate, right, which was the end of the 4th, beginning of the 5th century. Jerome, no knowledge of this. None of his manuscripts that he used to translate the Vulgate. No, nothing of that verse in the text. The texts that begin to, in the minuscule manuscripts, add this verse, when we start to pick them up in the later centuries, they're starred, bracketed. They have markings that show this is not an original reading. The, the earliest manuscripts we have of this. When you look at ancient translations, which we saw back to the second and third centuries, this is not there. It shows up later, hundreds of years after the original writing, and so most Bibles today say, hmm, that shouldn't, that shouldn't be there. So if someone accuses us of taking it out, if your benchmark is a 17th century English text, see... That's one way to say, yeah, it's taken out of a 17th century English text. But if you ask the question, did that 17th century English text, right, add it because it was looking at late Greek manuscripts from Erasmus, more on him in two weeks or next week, then we'd say the real concern that I have is not that it was taken out, but that it was placed in much later than the original writings of the New Testament. And that's the concern we have. Because as I said, I think quickly in haste with a shallow breathing last week because we were out of time. If the concern is Revelation 22 that says don't take anything out of the Bible, it also says don't add anything to it. So that sword has two edges and it works both ways. I should be concerned about finding the purest reconstruction of what the original text actually said. I shouldn't just be concerned about what at some point in church history did they have. Now let's not take it out when it reached its peak of voluminist uh, uh, conflations and, and added marginal readings and glosses. Don't take anything from that. Nothing is taken out, by the way, in your modern translations without a lot of real consternation because they know every time you read from verse 3 to verse 5, right, people are going to throw a flag on the play and get upset. So all of these are done with, uh, with real sobriety. Now, that's small, and I've already showed you a couple of small ones, but I think I afterwards guaranteed that I get to some of the larger ones. There are two large sections in your New Testament that are disputed, debated, and I want you to look carefully at the first one, Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse number 9. Lots of things to say about this but I don't want to belabor it either and spend all our time here when that's perhaps not a big concern. Now, I don't know how your Bible lays it out. I'm looking at a uh, Cambridge Press 
New International Version, and it has a big line under verse number 8. Does yours have something like that? Stars or brackets or something? And then what does it say? Something about early manuscripts, am I right? Okay. And from there to verse number 20, they say, well, this wasn't, this wasn't there. Now, because it's not one verse... We saw him extract a verse in Acts 8. We saw him extract a verse now over um, in the passage we were just in. Where was that? John 5. This is still in your text. See? But they've got the same exact problem, only worse in this text. But when you start taking out half a chapter, right, there's going to be anarchy. (laughs) So most Bibles leave it in. Very few Bibles will actually extract this. Although some gutsy, you know, publisher one day will say, listen, this uh, is a late edition. Some proof on this. Oldest manuscripts, Papyrus, Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Old Latin Codices, Old Syriac, uh, Georgian manuscripts, early versions, you name it, Coptic, uh, early church fathers, never quoted this, Okay. Eusebius, Jerome, absent from all of their work, it's not there. Okay? There is no early evidence for this. And when it does show up, as I said about the Mark, John 5 passage, it shows up with brackets or asterisks or columned notes from scribes that say this wasn't there. It was a late edition or it's a suspect reading Or we saw it in a manuscript, but it wasn't in our best manuscripts. And that's a picture from the Middle Ages that they're saying. And I got more to say on Mark 16. Like everyone thinks, well, that's the longer ending of Mark. Well, that's one place uh, that we have it. And it comes in all variations with extreme variations within the longer ending of Mark. But we're going to pick some more of that up a little bit later. More on this passage later. But does it belong here? The answer is no as much evidence against, it's actually more evidence against the longer ending of Mark than John 5, 4, or Acts, uh, or Acts 8. One more. This one's harder than all, because most would say, a lot of the theories about Mark 16, turn over to John chapter 5 with me. Mark 16, the theories about Mark 16 are varied, but some would believe that it's a scribe summarizing what comes next in the book of Acts. The discussion about Paul being bitten by the viper, and you know, the day of Pentecost and, and the speaking in, in new languages, all of that contained in the longer reading of, longer ending of Mark. Look at John chapter 7. What did I say? Something different. Five. That was on my mind. Now back to John 7. Very end of the chapter. Whereas I find when I deal with textual criticism, some people say about Mark 16, whoo, I'm glad that wasn't in the early manuscripts because that's a really weird passage. And if we can just get rid of that, you know, drinking poison and bitten, bitten by snakes and, you know, speaking in tongues, that would be helpful because it is a bizarre summation of the book of Acts. This one, though, everyone loves this story, see? But there's also a problem here. Bottom of chapter 7, look under verse 52. There should be a line some kind of demarcation. Some translations put it in in italics. If you have a study Bible or a reference Bible, it'll have something. If not in the column, it'll have something in the margin that says verse 53 of John 7 all the way to to, uh, John chapter 8, verse 11. Again, we should have some demarcation that manuscripts in the early part 
of the transmission of the text, this is, this is altogether absent, right? Same problem. Papyri, uncials, a lot of minuscule manuscripts, uh, old translations, uh, early, uh, the earliest references to these being marked with stars, brackets, or marginal notes. And the thing about this one, unlike Mark's ending, this ends up in a lot of places. This particular text sometimes ends up uh, a chapter earlier. Sometimes we find this story, this is the woman caught in adultery and getting down on the ground. I mean, you've heard great sermons on it. That's why people are you know, very reluctant to get rid of this text. But the problem is, with this particular text, it has a transient history in textual criticism. This very same text ends up, for instance, in the book of Luke. It shows up in some manuscripts in completely different places. And there's a lot of other things that we want to say about this, like we'll say about Mark 16, that would lead us to the conclusion that this is not an original reading within the manuscripts of John. Why? Because the early history of the development and transmission of manuscripts does not contain this text. Although most commentators and most books you read on this will say it probably was an actual event in John's, uh, I'm sorry, in Jesus' ministry, but it wasn't in John's book that he wrote. And that's why pastors, when they're preaching through John, they get to this and they preach it anyway. Because most are convinced it is something that happened. Nothing here concerning about the content. Although there have been some early textual criticism in the medieval church that said he seems pretty light on adultery. You know, maybe this doesn't belong here. But again, we have a problem of how distant from the original is the manuscript. So well, here's what I'm saying. Got a 3rd century manuscript, got a 12th century manuscript. 12th century manuscript is going to have this. A 3rd century manuscript is not going to have this. And the weight of the evidence, if you just watch it, like moving a, uh, uh, you know, some kind of, 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 of mark on a spectrum, you'll watch that it begins to find its place in later manuscripts, especially in Byzantine manuscripts where they continued to make Greek documents, copy Greek documents. All right, how are we doing? All right. Disturbed. Some are disturbed. That's all right. We'll help you with that. Another thing to consider. The origin of the manuscript. Here's the word I'd like us to think about, because if we're talking about copies, here's a good word for us to use. The genealogy of a manuscript. Now, the reason I'd like that to be the prominent word, and not geography is because genealogy is really the concern. It just happens that in an ancient world that's not as mobile as ours, those genealogical ties end up in geographic regions. Are you tracking with that? They stay in a place, they multiply, and just like you know, ethnic characteristics in parts of the world before the world was highly mobile, it sh they shared certain characteristics as those people multiplied, so it was with with texts. And if you remember back to this point in our study, there were four regions that shared similar variants. If you started to look, the Alexandrian text, the Caesarean text, the Byzantine text, and the Western text, they began to share common characteristics. Just like if you went to China, people started looking a lot different than if you went to the Middle East, and then if you went over to the you know, European and Northern, people started looking different. Same thing with the text. There were distinctions that arose in these geographic areas. But what I'm really concerned about, and what makes logical sense, is that it's all about the genealogy of one manuscript being copied to another. 
And in a particular area, these began to share commonality. Let's talk about each of these and how they differ. Let's start with the Alexandrian text family. We're considering now the genealogy of a text. They share common characteristics. Okay? First thing we need to note about this is that the oldest manuscripts that we have, the papyri, you remember that we go from papyri to uncial manuscripts to minuscule manuscripts, the papyri right, share the Alexandrian text distinctions. The distinctiveness of a variant, they share the same kinds of Alexandrian features. For instance, if you would find it in one papyri, you'd probably find it in another. It's not a universal statement. That's why the word most is there. But you can usually group all the papyri in the category of Alexandrian text family, text type. Use the word family. That's helpful genealogy. They share the same characteristics. It also includes the earliest uncial manuscripts. Now we're in a whole other category of formal large letters, kind of a formalized writing. We saw what those looked like earlier on. If you looked at those early uncial manuscripts, and we talked about Vaticanus and Biza and uh, Sinaiticus and all those funny named manuscripts that were found around the world, and they went back to the 3rd, 4th, 5th century, those manuscripts usually share the Alexandrian features. Now, the good thing, and the reason these have been favored through the years, is because of this next observation about Alexandrian papyri and uncials. They tend to exclude okay, obvious additions and conflations. Now, you have to buy where we've already been, that texts that we're looking at that have something like, he went into the city... And then later manuscripts say he went into the city of Jerusalem. Was that one example I showed you? Okay. And we assume that that clarification was added later, and that made sense to us. Or when we saw two variant readings in early manuscripts, say Caesarean and Alexandrian text, and then 400 years later we saw Byzantine manuscripts with both of those, we thought, well, it makes sense that that's a conflation, a combination of two readings. The good thing about the Alexandrian text family is it seems to exclude, in most cases, those obvious additions or combinations of readings. And that's a good thing. And that's why most people have said, well, that's certainly a point in favor when grammatical changes, harmonizations, natural complements, these are the things we went through, geographical clarifications, combined readings, and miscellaneous details seem to be left out of the Alexandrian family. Most people, when they started to care about textual criticism which was really, I know the big heyday was in the 1880s. Really, though, was 100 years before that. There was examples of textual criticism going back to the very beginning. But when people really started to roll up their sleeves and get serious about this, everyone started saying, we really like those Alexandrian texts because they tend to exclude obvious additions and conflations. And logically, it makes sense because they're early and they don't have those things. They seem to favor the reliable witness to the original. Alexandrian text family. Caesarean text family. Caesarean text family, which is under attack today in a lot of circles, and I'll tell you why. Not that you care probably about that, but some people don't even like to talk about Caesarean text family. Okay, But um, there is clearly a unique reading that comes from the western coast of Israel 
that is distinct from Alexandrian readings. They're early readings, but they're different. Alexandrian text variations seem to group together, and Caesarean text family variations seem to group together. And I'll clarify that and qualify it here in a minute. They're independent. They don't look like Alexandrian texts. Okay? It, and I don't know how much time... I, I, remember, I don't remember if we spent much time on the Hexapla origins really early, third century... Uh, he put together all these different, uh, the, the Septuagint and, and the, the, the Greek manuscripts in the New Testament. He built his six-column Bible, okay? The things that we find in that, which is probably the best preserved core of the Caesarean family, most of the readings follow that. And in the third century, one of the most important, ambitious, highly educated church leaders of Caesarea, see, the the differences between the Alexandria and the Caesarean text, they all seem to match, for the most part, Origins Hexapla. Now, here's the problem, if it's a problem. The importance of the difference between Alexandria and Caesarean texts are only an issue in the Gospels and some in, in the book of Acts, which, by the way, is a huge, huge book, right? There's a big section of the Bible. That's over half the Bible. Or the New Testament, I should say, half the New Testament right there. So that's a lot. But in the rest of the New Testament, it's irrelevant. There is no distinction. And the general epistles and the Pauline epistles and the book of Revelation, it doesn't really even have any distinctiveness. It's all over the map. And because of that, and because we love to study the epistles, a lot of people today say the Caesarean thing as a whole, you know, it's ridiculous because it doesn't even exist as an independent text family. And I would agree, it doesn't really exist. If you chart it out, which we had to do in school and all these variant readings, we put them in big charts. And when you chart them out, when it comes to New Testament uh, epistles, there's no distinctiveness to the variations. There's no pattern. But there is in the Gospels quite a bit. In Acts, some. Some would say there's not much in Acts, but there are some distinctive group-together variations that you can say, yes, that's, that's distinctive. Western. Western usually dates to the 4th to 7th century. This was important because the church moved out west, right? The center of the church moved to Italy, and that became the power base of the church, where we had the prosperity, we had the money, we had the peace in the kingdom to be able to let Christians, certainly post-Constantine, uh, spend a lot of time doing biblical uh, propagation of the text, Western text families. The problem with the Western text families, because it is later than early Caesarean and Alexandrian texts, we start to see clearly some harmonizations. Harmonizations, if you remember, the examples that I gave you were between a reading in one text that then they wanted to make in another text in two different Gospels. When one Gospel said uh, he came to call sinners to repentance... And another gospel says he came to call sinners, and it doesn't add repentance in two different uh, accounts of Christ's preaching. Well, when you get out to the Western text, by and large, you're going to find that those gospels start to match. Now it'll say in the Luke account, he came to call sinners to repentance. And we say, well, that looks like a harmonization because we have witnesses earlier that don't show that. And the distinctiveness of those gospels is maintained. Later, there is an attempt at harmonization. And again, there's subjectivity in that detective work. But Western text families 
show harmonization. They also, and there's no doubt about this, if you study Western text, show a lot of paraphrasing tendencies. You know what a paraphrase is? Paraphrase is I want to smooth this out to give it more sense. I want to give it a, uh, you know, I want to I have this, this, this difficult wordy sentence. I want to smooth it out so there's no confusion. Paraphrase. And I don't think anybody can debate that. And if we're paraphrasing, see, again, the assumption is it's later, it's paraphrased, it's not as reliable as earlier manuscripts. And we're left again with a predominance of confidence in Alexandrian text types, which for the group loving this next text family, that's blasphemy, the Byzantine text family. Now, there's no debating this. The Byzantine text family includes the latest text family. We don't have early Byzantine texts. The Byzantine text, even if you try to find a Byzantine reading that is a distinctive characteristic of Byzantine text, you can't find them prior to the fourth century. Just can't. You can find Caesarean readings. You might even find one or two Western readings, and you'll find all kinds of Alexandrian readings, but you're not going to find it in Byzantine text because we don't have a lot of Byzant unique Byzantine variants grouped together. We don't even have them before the fourth century. And they start to trickle in, and then they take off because as Constantinople became the center of a large and thriving religious empire, and because they kept spe speaking Greek, because what did they speak in Egypt? Coptic, right? What did they speak in Caesarea? Right? Syrian, right? What did they speak in the West? You know that one. Latin, right? But in the Byzantine Empire, they kept speaking Greek. So they kept producing manuscripts in Greek, and they began to explode. And because of that, we have more Greek manuscripts that follow the pattern, the similarity of Byzantine unique readings than any other text family. Far more than Alexandrian, far more than Western, far more than Caesarean. The Byzantine text family is huge. Now, much like the Western text family that's later, this is even later than the the general mean weight of the manuscripts are later than even the Western text family. What we find, if you want to talk about paraphrasing, the most polished readings in ancient manuscripts, if you want to call them that, which they are, I mean, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th century, those Byzantine manuscripts, they're the smoothest, most, and again, from, from my perspective, the most corrected manuscripts we have. Everything starts to now connect and get fixed and smoothed and clear, especially John. John is such a, uh, a simple writer. The vocabulary in the Gospel of John and the epistles of John, simple. Well, now it becomes, it, it looks like it's been graded by, you know, the, the junior high English teacher. It started now to, to look very smooth and very presentable by the time we get to the later Byzantine text family manuscripts. Now, again, I already mentioned this, but unknown to the earliest church pastors, the church fathers, the patristic fathers, the lectionaries, the sermons. Remember the anti-Nicene fathers set that I showed you? The red one, the 10-volume set? They were not quoting Byzantine, unique Byzantine readings. In other words, when they got to John chapter 5, they didn't have verse 4. They didn't have numbers, obviously, back then on their verses, but it wasn't there. When they quoted a text... 
The text reflected Alexandrian, sometimes Caesarean, and sometimes Western texts. And the shift later in the Patristic Fathers, in the teaching of the early pastors, it shifted a lot to Western texts. And not until much later do we start to see some Byzantine readings quoted in the post-Nicene Fathers of the Church. So, go back to John chapter 7 and 8 in your mind. Go back to Luke, uh, Mark 16, the longer ending. Again, the chart, I remember doing the papers in school. If you're going to build a chart of the texts and, and the text families and where they are in, say, where's, where's Mark 16, the longer ending of Mark? Do you see it in Alexandrian text? No. Do you see any in Caesarean text? A couple. Do you see any, and they're starred and asterisked and bracketed. Do you see any in the Western text? Yeah, you see some. Do you see any in the Byzantine text? Yeah, there's tons of them. And the later you go in the Byzantine text, the more you have. There's, there's tons. It's multiplied. The assumption of most would be, I would want to trust the earlier, seemingly non-harmonized, non-smoothed out, non-conflated manuscripts. Okay? That's what you would think. The problem is, the King James Version of the Bible is based on the Byzantine text family. And that's the Bible Granny used to use. See, And you're not going to mess with that, because she was godly. And that's a good Bible. It's good enough for Granny, good enough for me. Some people think it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it was good enough for me. But he wasn't carrying a King James Bible, I hate to tell you. Thank you for laughing at that. The point here is, though... There's a lot of emotion connected to the King James Bible. And the King James Bible, and we'll look at more of this when we look at the history of the King James Bible, was based on Erasmus's work, right? This guy at Cambridge who was, you know, commissioned to go put together the best Greek New Testament he could. Well, he had limited resources and very limited time. And as he put this together, he relied on Byzantine texts. I mean, that was what happened. That's what he had available to him. And from that came the 1611 King James Bible. And that means that you, that's the only reason, by the way, you have these things in your columns at all. Because had Erasmus had access to Alexandrian texts or other texts, and he said, wait a minute, these are earlier, these don't have them, these are a little bit later, and they have it bracketed, and these are really late, and they have it, he's going to say, without bias, doesn't belong there, you never even see that story except in some patristic father later in medieval church quoting some story that circulated about Jesus and an adulterous gal and writing in the, in, the, in the dirt. But we have them. And we have them because of the way history has played out. And many people say, well, that was God's plan. Clearly, there's a lot of real drama to the history of the English Bible. We'll get into that next time, Lord willing. Now, one thing that may be helpful... Is, um, is for you to know. And I don't want to get too far ahead on this because we'll talk about it, but Erasmus was commissioned at Cambridge to put together a Greek New Testament, which would later become the foundation of the King James Bible. He didn't even have a lot of Byzantine manuscripts, but he had more Byzantine than anything else. He had some parts of the Bible that he had no Greek manuscripts for. And he relied on certain Latin translations, late Latin translations, to put verses in, like two that we've already looked at. Acts chapter 8 and 1 John 5. Do you remember those? Now, when the average person, they learn a little bit about the Byzantine text family, they say, well, I like the King James Bible 
There's a lot of reasons usually they like it, but they say, but I think the Byzantine text family is the one we ought to use, and here's the argument, because there's more Byzantine texts supporting that variant reading than all the other text families combined. And you're right, in Greek, there are more Byzantine texts supporting a variant reading, right? They're late texts in an empire that continued to produce Greek texts, right? So they say, well, the majority manuscript wins. So they call that set of manuscripts that is their their critical edition of the Bible, they call it the majority text because it has the majority of Greek manuscripts, which really is a whole set of Byzantine, late Byzantine manuscripts, okay? Here's the problem. I've already told you that there were some passages that, that Erasmus didn't even have any Greek manuscripts for. He used late Latin manuscripts for, and guess what? Those made it into the King James Bible, so for someone to say, I believe in the Masoretic, t- I'm sorry, the uh, majority text, that's why I use a King James, 1611 King James Bible, which they don't use 1611 more on that later. They use much later version of the King James Bible, though they, a lot of people don't know that. But they say 1611 because I'm in the majority text. Here's the thing. Your majority text doesn't match your King James Bible. You think it does, but it doesn't. And I'm so glad they just put this book out. I think it was this year. I just bought one and have been pouring through it. It's the majority text, Greek, New Testament, interlinear. Which I have there, they put out earlier a majority text, New Testament, with absolutely zero apparatus. You know what I mean by that? No variant readings at all. It's as though I'm supposed to believe that there are no distinctions between Byzantine manuscripts. While they group together, it's like saying, well, in, in, in Japan, they all look the same, right? <laughs> Get in trouble for those statements. But they don't. There's variations among the way people look in Japan. Same thing. Byzantine manuscripts don't perfectly match. They share some characteristics, but they don't perfectly match. Okay? So they create a Bible years ago. I bought it years ago, but I don't use it much because there's nothing there to really... There's no footnotes. There's no variant readings. There's no apparatus. There's nothing but the text. Well, they just put this out. This is perfect, and I love this. And I've already got all my pages earmarked because... I often meet people that say, I believe in the King James Bible because it is based on the majority of Greek manuscripts. And I want to turn them quickly to places where that is not true. For instance, oh, let's get back to that one later. For instance, here's an example. Wow, that's tiny print. Can you read any of that? No. Okay. Can you see the box? That's the verse in the King James Bible that people will staunchly fight for as part of God's inspired word. Verse 37, then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may, right, be baptized, that is, what prevents me from being baptized. And he answered, he said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down and got Okay, an interlinear, you know what an interlinear is? It has the, uh, it has the text of Greek and the English underneath it, and in the margin it usually has a Greek uh, I mean, an English translation. This is the New King James Version, right, which follows the King James readings, which everyone says is majority text. It's not majority text because here's the majority text, right? Verse 36, verse 38. Where's verse 37? It's just like your Bible. Do you see that? Do you see what just happened there? That's why I put a smiley face. It should be there, but it's not there. Now, when people make you, and I've had them, I've had the pastors of these churches sit in my study and tell me as they put the King James Bible down and they put my Bible down at the time, whatever it was, NAS, NIV, whatever, and they'll say, one of these is the Word of God. One of them is, and one of them isn't, okay? And you've got to tell me, 
you know, which one you're believing in, brother. And, and so, again, when we get into the details of it, they say, well, I believe in the King James Bible because it is based on the majority of Greek manuscripts. I'm so glad they printed this for me because now I can open this because most of these guys haven't studied any languages anyway. And I can say, look at the interlinear text that is the majority of Byzantine manuscripts, okay? Look at your text and look at the majority of Byzantine manuscripts. Not to mention Alexandrian, right? Not to mention Caesarean or Western text. This verse is not there, right? And yet it's in the King James Bible, and they'll staunchly defend it as the inspired word of God and not a marginal gloss, because that's what it is. It's a marginal gloss that was added late in time. So even their Byzantine texts don't support it. Are you tracking where I'm at? Maybe again, this is why I'm saying I'm fighting a battle. Maybe this uh, totally, you're, I don't even get it. People will punch you in the mouth over this topic. I've had people red in the face, their spit coming out of their mouth onto my face as they're just arguing with me. They're just so mad about it. Because this is Satan's Bible that we're reading. Because it took out verses like this. Another example. This book that I'm showing you right here. Oh, I'm sorry. This is the one we dealt with. This is uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 37. Which I made you look up last time and you said it's not here. Right? You thought I was playing a trick. Well, it's not there because it's not there in Alexandrian text, Western text, Caesarean text, and hey, surprise, surprise, KJV only people, it's not even in the Byzantine text. See what I'm saying? Okay. Another example. There's my smiley face. Oh, I just like that popping up. Makes me happy. <laughs> Boop. That's where it belongs, but it isn't there. Another example. This is 1 John chapter 5. I should have said that last time, but here it is now. 1 John chapter 5. I'm using these two because these are the two I showed you on the overhead if you were with us. If you missed that one, you missed it. Here's the verse. Do you remember this verse? I had you turn to verse 7. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Remember that verse? And we said, here's one thing we said. If that verse were available in any manuscript of the New Testament, of any copy of 1 John... When the early church fathers were debating Arius and going off about the deity of Christ, would they not quote it? And there ain't a single church father that quotes this verse. You know why? It ain't there. It ain't there in Alexandrian text. It's not there in Western text. And it's not there in Caesarean text. And guess what? Look at this. Here's the Byzantine text, right? Because three are the ones witnessing. What's that? That's it. Where's the, where's, the, where's the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one? No, no, no. It's the same thing as it's in the Alexandrian, Western, and, and, and Caesarean text, which is, it ain't there. This is wonderful, this new publication. I love it. Because what it does for us is it will show you that while a lot of the readings, like the longer ending of Mark, like the woman caught in adultery in John 8, I agree with you. The later Byzantine manuscripts contain those verses. But there are several verses that we can show you that made it into the 1611 King James Bible that are not supported by any text family. And yet, because it's there, and you use a 16th or 17th century English translation as the benchmark by which you measure everything else, see, your standard is wrong. We should at least be able to pick some texts of the ancient world to base our translation on, right? Helpful. Now, I gave you um, a picture of what I just am, am quoting here. It's, it's this one right here. Uh, not that you need to buy it. You can borrow it from one of our pastors, right? 
but they don't have an ESV, since we're going to that in January, that is exactly like that, an interlinear that has the order of Greek words and English words under it. What is produced currently to date, and I'll let you know as soon as it comes out, the other one, is the reverse interlinear. And the, the reverse interlinear is when the English words of the ESV are in the right order and the words underneath them are the Greek words that they translate. And that's super helpful for word studies. It'll have a number that you can use to look it up in tools. It'll have a parsing of the word. What kind of word is it? Is it a noun? Is it a verb? What does it look like? How is it used? What's the mood? What's the tense? What's the voice? What's the person? What's the number? It'll all be there in abbreviated form. And that's, if you're going to buy an interlinear, these are in our bookstore. Um, if you want an interlinear, that's the one to get, not the one on the left. Smiley face. There it is again. Just to show you. Did you follow the logic of this, of what I'm pointing out here? It's important to know. Okay. Well, I still, Grandpa is a big King James guy. There's a lot of guys that love the King James that aren't into any of this text family stuff. Leave them alone. Leave them alone. Just, if they like these and nows and they're into that, fine. If that's the Bible they like to read, no problem. Is it the best translation out there? No. Is it based on the best manuscripts? No. Are there issues and problems with it? Yes. But it is not a big, stinking deal, okay? But those that come to you and say, your translation is from the devil because it keeps snatching these favorite verses of mine and poof, they go away every time I turn the page, you need to get a couple books. Here's two of them. King James Version Debate by, by Don Carson. Which, by the way, if you say, well, I'm not really into that. I don't want to buy another book. He's always making us buy books. Great. I got an answer for you. You don't have to buy it. Don't tell Don I did this, but it's all legal. This is a summary of the book, okay? It's all it is, I, we just outlined the book for you, okay? So I need some people to help pass these out. This will be a supplement there after page 61 on your, on your workbook there. So let's get those passed out. What I did with Carson's book, and it's so just simple, straightforward. I just outlined the book, or I had somebody do it. I can't remember if I did it or someone else did it. But it was years ago I put this together, or had it put together. All he did, or I did, let's just credit the unknown person, uh, is outline the argument of the book. You've had enough introduction tonight to read through that outline and, and get a nice scholarly structure of why the Byzantine text is not to be preferred, even though there are more manuscripts, which I think I've already made the case, but he'll do it with a little more detail. And if you're thinking, well, I want to read more on that, great, great, get the, get the book on the left. If you say, well... They're talking about guys that I don't even know anything about. Guys like, uh, you know, Hort and Westcott and Hort, right? Brooke, Westcott, and Fenton Hort. Those guys are always the bad. You need to get the book on the right. Get this book. James White, King James Only Controversy, Can You Trust Modern Translations? He deals with all the arguments from the leaders who write these ridiculous books who try to say that the King James Bible is not just based on the best manuscripts. That's what the left book deals with. But the King James Bible is providentially and sovereignly inspired itself. Oh, nobody believes that. I can introduce you to them. Several people believe this. Okay? And they believe. And go on the internet and look it up tonight. Here's what they, They'll go so far as to say this. When I'll show them something simple about, you know, a bad translation, and here's what the Hebrew word is, or here's what the, English, the Greek word, they'll say, stop. I've had them say this to me, and they'll say it to you on their websites. I don't care what the Greek says, and I don't care what the Hebrew says. 
As a matter of fact, the English should be used to change the Greek and change the Hebrew if it doesn't match what the English text of the King James Version says. Had them say it. I've got a file literally probably this thick of information that is either refuting these guys, dealing with these guys, but this book does it eloquently and, and, and forthrightly. So get the book on the right if you're dealing with someone telling you Satan has written your new Bible and, and you need to get back to the real deal. All right, let's keep going. Great summary of that little book there. I was reading through this uh, this afternoon and I thought we've, we've come far enough in this study where this should be read and you go, I get it, understand it. All the words, Alexandrian, Byzantine, P70, P75, you know, Alexandrinus, you, you'll get it. You'll get it. And the reason, by the way, he uses TR or Texas Receptus, which he probably defines here at some point, is because they'll say, ultimately, because of the, the, the discrepancies I pointed out here, they'll say, I agree, the King James Bible is really not based on the majority text, though they think it is. Many people do. It's based on the Texas Receptus. More on that when we deal with the history of the English Bible. There is a distinction there, because that was literally the, the, the document they worked from. When guys put into, and this is a lot like the argument I just gave you, into Greek, in the Texas Receptus, sentences they had no Greek witnesses for, only Latin witnesses for. They translated back into Greek, because they had no manuscripts in Greek that had that reading, but they put that reading. That's where you get these verses that we don't have in Byzantine, Alexandrian, Western, and Caesarean text types. All right. Now, let's decide between variants. How do we do that? Page 61? Oh, we're already there. Consider the options. That's what we're doing. Bottom of the page. Now, just think this through, because I've already kind of thrown these concepts out there, but let's, let's codify them a little bit and, and think this through. Okay? The first question I've got when I've got a variant in front of me is I've got to decide between a simple reading or a difficult reading. Okay? A simple or difficult variant. I got two variants in front of me. One is grammatically difficult or logically difficult, or I struggle to understand what exactly that verse means. And then over here I got one, and it makes sense, and it's simple, and I get it. Okay? A couple things. Copyists tend to simplify. They want the Bible that they are copying, the letter of James, the Gospel of Mark. They want it to make sense. They're producing a copy of something they're copying. They hit something that's difficult, they want to make it understandable. Copyists tend to simplify. Copyists tend to smooth. If word order is awkward, they want to put it in a word order if they feel the freedom to do so. They want to put it in a word order that smooths it out. Copyists tend to simplify. Copyists tend to smooth. Now, follow my logic on this. Some people say, well, I don't, I don't know if I buy that. Ask, ask yourself this. And here's the statement, and ask yourself the, the question related to this. The trend is not to make it complex. <laughs> Let's just think. You're copying a Bible for your cousin Jim, who's just become a Christian. Do you want to make it harder to understand or easier to understand? Nobody makes a copy wanting to make it harder. Therefore... Thinking through those simple steps, when I have two variants on the table and one is difficult, either grammatically or hard to understand, or what exactly is the point and what's the antecedent to that, and I'm not sure, it's not real clear, and one is very smooth and clear, here's what textual critics have decided, and it makes logical sense. I'm going to choose the difficult reading. It's probably, it's probably the, the original. 
and add this to it, put a matrix in your mind, guess what? The later manuscripts are the simplified, smoother readings, and the older manuscripts, generally speaking, are the more difficult, complex, harder to figure out the antecedent to that pronoun. So in time, and logically, prefer the simpler reading. In every case, can you say that's the case every single time? I can't say that. But as a general rule, if I'm going to decide between two variant readings, I'm going to choose the more difficult reading. Secondly, I got two variants in front of me. One is shorter, one's longer. Let's just look at number of words. I got a verse here with more words in it and a verse over here with less words in it. I want to make a decision between these two. Now, there's lots of factors, but let's just think about length, okay? Copyists tend to harmonize. Going to go to the city. Well, I'd like to clarify. This is Luke writing. Dr. Luke, he's going to write to a great... Let's clarify. The city of Jerusalem. Can I add those two words? Because that'll make it more clear. And it's longer. It makes the verse a little longer. Or he wants to stop the chariot and he wants to get baptized. Well, I want to clarify. We just don't baptize anybody who wants to get baptized. We baptize people who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So we're going to add that just to clarify which one's longer. The variant reading's longer that tries to clarify. Or I guess harmonize was the concept here. I got two different accounts, one in Luke and one in Matthew, and one says he came to call the, um, he didn't come for the healthy, he came for the sick, he came to call sinners, and I got it over here, say sinners to repentance, and now I find later in time, it says sinners to repentance in Luke as well, well, that makes it longer, well, that's a harmonization of those two passages, and if you look at the matrix and find the older manuscripts tend to be longer readings and the earlier manuscripts tend to be shorter readings, again, you start to get confirmation. It makes more sense. If I got two manuscripts on the table with variant readings, I'm going to choose the shorter reading. That just makes logical sense. Prefer, generally speaking, the shorter reading. Copies tend to combine, harmonize. That's another way to say it. The trend is not to leave it out. Unless it's some obvious exclusion or a line has been skipped, the point is you don't sit there and go, well, I'm going to leave it out. I got two manuscripts before me. One adds this phrase and one doesn't have the phrase. And I'm going to, the tendency is not to leave out. The tendency is to combine or harmonize. So I choose the shorter variant, generally speaking, over against the, the longer reading. Thirdly, Consistent or inconsistent? Durr. Well, glosses are usually a foreign style. Okay? I'll give you an example of this in a minute. Glosses are usually a foreign vocabulary, even like the one I just gave you. Jesus is the Son of God. Now, Luke does use that phrase a couple of times in his gospel. Pretty much foreign in the book of Acts, but it's there in the gloss. Now, you can't make the case, well, he he might have said it. Well, he might have, but it's not the way he usually designates Christ. That's kind of a Johann and a John phrase, not a Luke phrase. And yet the gloss is longer, it's later, it clarifies, and it's a style or a vocabulary that's not really normal for for Luke, because Luke wrote Acts, right? So probably don't prefer it. And again, the Byzantine champion will say, but there's more manuscripts that have it. I get that, see? But there's a lot more than majority wins here. Original readings usually match style and vocabulary. Okay, now I I think Mark 16 was the one I had to uh, write a paper on, but here, here is just a quick cliff note on Mark 16, okay? 
just thinking about consistencies or inconsistencies. Mark's a pretty simple, forthright gospel. He's to the point, he's terse, he's quick, his action, it's move, and the words are used repeatedly. There are nine unique vocabulary words that Mark nowhere uses in verses 9 through 20 in the longer ending of Mark. Hard to find another section of Mark where you could pick that few number of verses and find that many hapex legominas or one-time usages of a vocabulary word. Nine of them. Two of them are unique phrases to the entire New Testament. It's nowhere to be found. Now, are there unique phrases in the New Testament? Absolutely. But they're generally few and far between because the author has written quite a bit in the scriptures. You might find it in James or in Peter, but Luke, you understand Luke wrote more than half of the New Testament? Did you know that? I know you think John, Paul wrote most of the New Testament. Luke wrote more verses than any other writer in the New Testament because the book of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, he wrote them both. In terms of number of verses, he wrote most of the New Testament. To find nine unique words and two unique phrases in the entire Bible, this looks like a later edition literary style, and I can't prove this to you in English, but it's just unique. It's not Mark's. You compare Mark's style to the longer ending of Mark, verses 9 through 20 in Mark, it just doesn't square. Even if you look at the immediate context, read the first few verses in the Gospel of Mark uh, 16, Mark 16, 1 through 8, and look at him describe and define Mary, and then as it starts in 9, it's like a whole new beginning. I call it Mary's entourage, but the whole crew is left out. Now we're just talking about Mary, the appearance of Christ. Verse 8, very uncharacteristic transition for Mark's style. Now this is a long section. It's a lot like John, and we could do the same thing with John 8. It wouldn't be enough on its own to exclude it. But when you find out that it's longer, it, uh, well, in this case, seems to clarify the book of Acts. Wow, I've been talking about Luke this whole time haven't I? This is Mark 16, I'm sorry. Mark wrote 16 chapters, not half the New Testament. Luke, sorry, you caught that. You caught that. If you didn't catch it, I'm catching it now. Where am I? Uncharacteristic transition in verse number eight. Well, this really is disheartening to me. I thought that this was all tight. It is tight. One, one quote. When it comes to the Bible as a whole, the New Testament as a whole, Old Testament, we don't have as many variations. New Testament, we've got variant readings. From Geisler and Nick's book, page 180, when a comparison of the variant readings in the New Testament is made with those of other books which have survived from antiquity. Now, we did this with number of manuscripts, gaps, and all that. Now we're talking about variant readings. The results are a little short of astounding. Only about one-sixteenth rise above the level of the trivial. In other words, we've looked at the big ones. We looked at Acts 8, we've looked at 1 John 5, we've looked at Mark 16, and we've looked at uh, John chapter 8. Those are the big ones, the ones of real significance. Everything else, word order, spelling of names, proper nouns, uh, leaving out a part of the title of Christ, or adding a part of the title of Christ, which is usually how it goes, right? Christ Jesus, our Lord, or Christ that the variants are so small compared to other books of antiquity. If you go number of manuscripts compared to variant readings, the New Testament is probably one of the most consistently copied, uh, short of the Old Testament itself, 
consistently copied manuscripts of antiquity. Although we've been pointing out the exceptions to that rule. You got any gas to keep going? Let's go just a couple more, okay? Can we do that? Translation. Because we've got to save some time for our discussion on the ESV. This will carry over here a little bit. The goal for all translators. Goals for all translators. Well, you'd think you'd want to base the translation on the best manuscripts. And since we just covered this, maybe this will be helpful to think this through based on where we just were. Okay? Now, first, we've got to talk Old Testament. We haven't been there for a while. You can choose an English translation that's based on the Masoretic text only. Or you can choose an Old Testament translation that's based on the Masoretic text and takes into consideration the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint. Greek translation of the New Te Old Testament. Okay? Let me give you some examples. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32. We can end with this, I guess. Because I'm losing you. I can feel it. You remember what my old preacher used to say, right? He said, you got to quit preaching before they stop listening. Right? He said, that's the number one rule of preaching. Quit before they do. So, I break, I break that rule consistently. Deuteronomy 32. Maybe you've noticed some of these we find them a lot in the New Testament, the footnotes that we go, oh, older manuscripts, newer manuscripts, get that. Well, if you've got a King James Bible that is based on the Masoretic text exclusively, for the most part, okay, you're going to read this in Deuteronomy 32.8. When the Most High divided their inheritance into nations, he separated the sons of Adam and set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. Okay, got that? Now, if you have an NIV, the NIV knows that the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls are not in favor of that reading, right? And there are some Masoretic texts that are not in favor of that reading. They end the verse this way, the NIV, according to the number of the sons of Israel with a footnote. Do you have an NIV in front of you? What's the footnote say? Read what? Sons of God. Now, you got your ESV in front of you? Who are the early... ESVers. How does that end? According to the number of the sons of God. Now that'll have a footnote too. What does the footnote say? Does it have a footnote? I don't have an ESV. Dead Sea. It points out. Do you see the shift that took place there? Because there was evidence with the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint and some of the Masoretic texts weighing in favor of the reading the sons of God, the Ben Elohim, the, the angelic hosts. It went with that reading, even though it was, here it comes, more difficult, which seems to make sense. And the Masoretic text they left behind in a footnote. NIV wasn't bold enough to do that. They kept sons of Israel in the text and footnoted the Dead Sea Scrolls in the, in the Septuagint. This happens rarely, but it happens. I gave you that, that uh, Harold Scanlon book, Dead Sea Scrolls and Modern Translations. It'll list every one of these, and it's not very many. But every time there's a concern like this, it'll talk about it. Let me turn you to another one. Psalm 119. Psalm 119, look at verse uh, 37. Psalm 119, verse 37. The bottom of that verse reads this in the King James Version. Revive me in your way. Right? You see that? If you have a King James, most of you don't. You've got an NIV. And it says, preserve my life according to your word. I don't know if that has a footnote or not. Does it? Okay. What does it say? Okay. It gives the alternate reading of the Masoretic text to your way. But it goes with the Dead Sea Scrolls that says, 
your word. Which is not considered in a vacuum because it would be one of the very few verses in all the massive verses in Psalm 119 that doesn't have a reference to the word of God. The Dead Sea Scrolls had it. Septuagint had it. Some Masoretic texts that were the preponderance of evidence for the translators early on didn't have it. They went with way, like the King James did. Okay? ESV readers. You got your ESV in front of you? Give me life in your what? Ways. They went with the Masoretic reading, ignored the internal evidence, which is fine. You have the right to do that. You're the translator. And ignored the Dead Sea Scrolls. So there's no consistency here. It's just that modern translations are always grappling with anything that starts to pull them into a different set of Masoretic texts, 10th century Masoretic texts. One more. You're in Psalms. Go to Psalm 144. Here's one where the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint disagree with each other. And the majority text is split. Psalm 144, verse 2. King James Version, based on the Masoretic text, at least half of the Masoretic text, it says, Who subdues my people under me? Now, the Dead Sea Scroll doesn't have the personal pronoun. And your NIV says, who subdues people under me, right? And you ESV readers have, who subdues people under me. Both the ESV and the NIV let the weight of the Dead Sea Scrolls push them over the edge and say, the division between the Masoretic texts, we're going to go with subdues people, not subdues my people. Does any of your Bibles have a footnote on that that references the Dead Sea? Does it? Oh, good. Usually the translators are transparent about this in the Old Testament because there are not very many of them. In the New Testament, a lot of times you don't have the footnotes because there's a lot of distinction between the Masoretic text, I'm sorry, the majority text and the rest of the text types. That was kind of interesting, huh? Is that worth some time? That was interesting. Sure. Now, New Testament. Now we're back to our, our discussion here. We're, we're not even to wherever, we're still under... Letter A there. In the New Testament, you can pick a translation based on Byzantine manuscripts only, and you got a very small choice. <laughs> you got the King James Version or the New King James Version, that's your choice. And some people say, well, the New King James has a lot of footnotes. It does footnote Alexandrian texts and eclectic texts, what we call it, Western, Caesarean, and Alexandrian. But it's still going to stick with the Byzantine text readings. Uh, or you can pick a New Testament that tries to consider all available, all available manuscripts. And that's just about every single new translation out there. Most of the translations today will start with a, and they're exactly the same, I know people think they're not, either a blue-covered Nestle Alland 27th edition Greek New Testament, or they'll start with a red United Bible Society 4th edition Greek New Testament. By the way, the texts are the same, different footnotes. And I even read in a King James-only pamphlet this week, that Nestle text, it's been edited 27 times, 27 editions already. It's not true. Every time they renew the edition of the Greek New Testament, they're changing the apparatus. They're changing the footnotes. They're changing the cross-references. The text itself has been changed very, very few times uh, in, those trans in the differences between them all. Uh, the new editions usually change some kind of footnote or the text type or the size of the text or the, the, the uh, punctuation. So every modern translation, if it starts with the UBS 4 or the Nestle text, uh, 27th edition, 28th edition is on its way out right now, which will be exciting um, because it's all going to be electronic on their website, which will be neat. Uh, but anyway, they're all going to pull from an eclectic text, 
all the text types, Alexandrian, Western, Caesarean, and Byzantine. You don't need to think that there's no weight given to the Byzantine text in modern translation. There is, but they don't let it win simply because there's more manuscripts. Let's pray. God, thanks for tonight. Thanks for getting, us our, getting our minds in this. I pray it would be uh, helpful that we can cogitate on this, think through it, uh, let this concept marinate in our minds, and most importantly, just be unified in knowledge. Help us in that regard. And for those that uh, have a zeal without knowledge on these things, I pray you'd help just to, to bring us together, God, to stop uh, generating quite so much heat in the circles where the heat is generated, and we'd have a lot more understanding. Uh, so I pray you'd help us in that regard. Let us be, though, at least as uh, the scripture is clear about, we need to be uh, growing ourselves in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and in this case, the means by which you tell us about our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to be confident in our knowledge of your word, knowing the necessary difficulties of a text that's this old, uh, and then let us have confidence in the scholarship that goes into deciding between variant readings through the centuries. Uh, thanks so much for allowing us to have great you know, books and great texts and great uh, uh, professors and leaders and teachers and, and even pastors who can help us with this. And I pray, God, that we would continue to grow and that you give us confidence in your word. Let us get in it every day. Get us in it tonight. Get us in it tomorrow morning. Let us feed on your word as you tell us to. In Jesus' name, amen.